Whenever I hear a bio like that, I have to drill my story down to one sentence. Now, I've been saying it for about 15 years, but are you game? Can I try it out on you guys too? All right, it goes a little something like this. Hi, y'all. My name is Allison Allen. I am a 5'12 perimenopausal mop, <laughs> comma, whom Jesus Christ absolutely rescued from an ordinary existence over a quarter of a century ago. That's my real story, and I'm sticking to that. Amen. <laughs> Well, I am gleefully married to Jonathan Allen, my tall man. Yes, I'm going to embarrass him right there. 25 years, he's a worship pastor. I do want to tell you, when I was doing a show in New York and I felt the grace lift off that situation, came home to Greensboro, North Carolina, I was about 26 or 27 years old, and I was just wondering if the Lord was ever going to answer my heart cry for marriage, and I started to pray, and I said, Lord, I only need two things. I just need him to love Jesus, and I need a man with whom I can wear heels. <clears throat> anyway, I walk into church one Sunday morning, and he was there leading worship. He was just going after the presence of God with, with such hunger, and, and I, I, I took note, I admit. And, and anyway, a friend of ours, a couple weeks later, we were going to a Wendy's. Do y'all remember in the 1980s when getting a Frosty was like getting a Starbucks coffee? Wave at me if you are my people, okay? This is when we thought spiral rod perms were a good idea for curly-headed people. <clears throat> anyway, so my friend and I, we went to the Wendy's to get a Frosty, and, and lo and behold, there's this gentleman that, that had been leading worship, and he stood up, and he was, wow, he was really tall. And then his girlfriend stood up next to him. <laughs> and I thought something really spiritual. It went like this. That's kind of a waste of a tall man. <laughs> now, I always have to say, I'm not saying she was a waste. We love those folks that are not vertically challenged, right? Or Lisa, right? We love Miss Lisa, right? But there are times, you know, when you're a tall woman, there's just something about being able to wear heels. Anyway, about a year later, we were married, and so we've been together 25 years. We have two sons, an old covenant and new covenant son, Levi, who's in college, and Luke, who's our miracle baby, who's looking at me like, please, mama, don't point over here one more time. So those are my people. I do want to say it's uh, such an honor to be here at CPC. It's my third time. And um, I just want to thank Pastor Chris, Lisa, other pastors, folks that have held us together in prayer. This is a little bit like a second home. And so it's an honor to stand upon this altar and, um, and to watch all that God is doing in your midst. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you to the team uh, for having me back on this Mother's Day to speak. It's a true, true honor to be here. Well, today we are going to talk about the voice of God, and I promise you we're going to get there about the second half of our time today. But what I wanted to do to start was take a little bit of a walk through the hallways of a motherhood museum, if we can. And I think we've got a slide. I just want to talk about a few of these mothers of merit in the scripture We've got Sarah who moves from manipulating to get the promise to actually receiving the promise legitimately. We've got Leah, we have Rachel, we have Jochebed or Jochebed. I love her. She is actually listed in Hebrews 11 along with her husband. She's kind of the uh, prototypical mama bear. And she's listed in Hebrews because she defied the Pharaoh's order and she hid Moses. And she's listed in the hallway of faith because of that. We've got Hannah, 
We have the widow of Zarephath. If there, I'm sure there may be some folks who are walking through a season of widowhood or this is your first uh, Mother's Day uh, without your husband. And so I just wanna say that Jesus is with you in that story, no matter where you are today. She, of course, maintained livelihood for the prophet during a very difficult time in Israel's history. We've got Naomi, we've got Ruth, we've got Elizabeth, and we've got Lois and Eunice. And Lois and Eunice really speak to my heart. They sound like some good old Southern names, don't they? <clears throat> Paul commends Lois and Eunice. That is the mother and the grandmother of Timothy. And he basically says to them, I see this beautiful embodied faith that you have and I see that that has been passed down to Timothy. How many of you know you cannot stand against the prayers of a grandmama? Yeah? Anybody think you're here in the house today because a grandmother prayed for you? I know I am. Wave at me if, if that's your story, all right? Or if you're a praying grandmother, thank you so much for praying us through. Well, I've, I've got a bit of a story that revolves or swims in the same water as Lois and Eunice, and I'd like to share it with you. Is there any way I could get a little bit of water? I've got just, how many of you know you can be doing fine, you step up to teach and a frog just leaps right on up in your throat? Here we go, thank you, Miss Lisa, thank you so much. Okay, friends, the year was 2000. Y'all remember when we narrowly escaped falling off a cliff with Y2K? <clears throat> Anybody else have stockpiles of water and a generator in the garage? Anyway, in that same year, there was a precious woman who went home to be with the Lord. Her name was Cleola Kraut. I just, I just love that name. It reminds me of Lois and Eunice. Anyway, in this year, I went to her memorial service. I traveled into Pelion, South Carolina, just a speck of a nothing little town. You kind of speed down the blacktop to anywhere else. Anyway, I, I went into Miss Cleola's funeral and there were a couple things that struck me immediately. You know, when you go to an average 80-year-old's home go, and how many of you know that that's often a, a polite smattering of friends and family? But something caught my eye immediately. Florence Baptist Church was packed stem to stern, side to side, standing room only with people ringing the small congregation. Three pastors had traveled in to eulogize this Miss Cleola Kraut. And I heard stories of all the years that she had taught adult Sunday school. It was 25 years. The years of putting together VBS, uh, the time she brought meals and, and countless visits. Here's what I'm trying to say. This was a woman who loved truly and was truly loved, y'all. And so after the service, you know, when you go to put uh, the earthly coil into the earth, Florence Baptist Church was one of those little country churches that have the, had the graveyard right next door to the church. We go right over to lay her in the ground, and then they're kind of corralling everybody for the potluck, because how many of you know at a southern funeral, you're still going to eat? <clears throat> And so they, they kind of were starting to corral us toward the fellowship hall. And as I was moving, a man started to approach me. And there were a couple things that caught my eye immediately. Um, his, his suit was somewhat ill-fitting. His wrists and his, his ankles were kind of hanging out all akimbo. And it was sort of a polyester specimen that had last seen the light of day when staying alive was a number one hit. <laughs> 
what I knew innately by the Spirit, y'all, was that he was doing everything in his power to feel comfortable at churchy things and around churchy people. And that suit was his attempt to show respect and to try to, to fit in. And he walked up to me and I noticed that his hands were shaking and somehow I innately knew that I was not looking at Parkinson's but I was likely looking at DT's. This was a man whose life had been ravaged by addiction. You could almost see it on his face. And he grabbed my hands. I remember they were cool. It was a summer day and that's why I remember it. And he, he pulled me close and this is what he said. He said, he said, ma'am, when nobody would come to me, when nobody would come to me, when I went through all my troubles and my addictions, when nobody would come to me, Miss Cleola, she came to me. She came to me. She sat with me. She brought a meal. She held my hand. And then he looked at me and he said, Ma'am, your grandmother came to me. And then he dropped my hands and he walked away. And I never did get his name. Now, not only am I trying to press upon you the power of one faithful life, one small life by the standards of the world who spent her life shining for the king of glory in invisible places and the power and the efficacy that one life had of the ability of God to speak through her to a brokenhearted man. So if you are that kind of grandma in the house today, don't stop praying for us. Don't stop begging God for us. Don't stop holding on to the hem of his garment for us. That's one thing that I'd like to share with you. But the other thing, and probably the more important thing is, I wonder if anybody here today feels a little bit like the man in the ill-fitting suit who came to church today because it was Mother's Day. And they promised their mama they would show up. And you did everything you could to kind of put yourself together so you would fit in and feel comfortable in the house of God. And what I feel impressed to say, I felt impressed this morning as well, is you are welcome here. You're welcome here. No matter how you come. Whether you come rejoicing or you come lamenting whether you come feeling like you fit in and you got it all together, which none of us have it all together, okay? Or you come in in agony, in pain, even in addiction. You sit on the periphery of God's presence. You go to the back row. You never would come to the front row. I want you to hear the God of all glory saying to you, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home, and we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of today to respond to that invitation in a more significant way, but start that journey by just going, he says, come in. He says, take a seat. He says, it doesn't matter what I look like on the outside, and it doesn't matter what I've been through on the inside. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Amen. That's what I hope God does for you today in the house. If you hear nothing else, 
Hear that. Hear the call of the Father to your heart. Well, I want to get back to my list here before I go off down a a rabbit trail, but let's get back to that. So we've got Lois and Eunice, and then we come to Mary. Mary is someone that we usually only talk about around Christmas time and Christmas carols and Christmas plays, but y'all, Mary's stories is one of the most radical stories of obedience in the entirety of the scripture. Amen? Amen? It is the most radical yes of scripture, in my humble opinion, aside from Jesus saying yes to the cross. And what is astounding about Mary's encounter with the representative of God is that when God begins to speak to her and says these most audacious things through the angel Gabriel, she says, well, how can this be? She does ask a question since I've not known a man. And then the angel continues to speak. And then what does she say? Let it be done unto me according to your word. According to what you have said. You have spoken to me and I am responding. And I know that y'all have been living, you've been diving in those waters of the voice of God. One of the things that is so astounding to me about Mary's encounter is that God is not just monologuing. I'm a theater geek. I'm sorry, do I have any band or theater geeks in the house? Will you wave at me so I'm not alone? Oh, I've got a lot of you, yay, okay. So a monologue, mono means one. Often when God speaks in scripture, it is just he speaks and no one responds. Right? We see this with Baruch at the end of Jeremiah. God just speaks and there is nothing to say back. Right? This is the omniscient, omnipotent God. He speaks and there's no response. We just come under the ministry of his voice and the ministry of his word. But there are rare times in the scripture that God allows dialogue. Dialogue. It's not just monologue. It's dialogue. He speaks And he invites his creation to actually speak back to him. That's astonishing. That's actually what we see in the story of Mary. But y'all, there is a woman in the scripture who doesn't actually just speak with one of God's representatives, but actually speaks with God himself. And aside from Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, so far I cannot find a longer conversation between a woman and God than what I see in Miss Hagar. 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 If you know anything about Hagar's story, you know that she is an outsider. She's been indentured. She's an enslaved woman. She is outside the children of faith at the time. And yet, y'all, in her greatest moment of need, God shows up and begins to speak to her. And the crazy, audacious thing is that God allows her to what? Talk back. Over and over and over again. In fact, there's not just one conversation between God and Hagar. There are two. And so I just want to look for just a moment at some of the things that God says or God speaks to Hagar in this encounter. Now, I feel like I need to say this before we go forward. I have never, ever in my life heard the audible voice of God. If you've never heard the audible voice of God, would you just throw up a hand so we know how not alone we are? Okay, it's most of us in the room. 
But how many of you know that when God speaks, it's somehow louder than mere sound? It's not so much that God speaks, but God speaks. And then we see it confirmed by what? His scripture. God's never going to say anything to you that runs contrary to this right here. Amen? And then we often find it confirmed by those that we walk, that walk also in wise counsel. So when I talk about the voice of God or us hearing the voice of God, I want you to understand that I'm not necessarily talking about the voice of God audibly, that it's deeper than mere sound. Okay, let's go into Hagar's story and see what God says. If you don't know Hagar's story, I'm gonna try to just drill it down for you into a kind of a small nutshell if I can. Abraham, who is the prototypical patriarch of our faith, has been promised lots of things by God. But one of the things he has been promised especially is that his offspring, his children and their children and their children and their children, will be as numerous as the stars and sand, if I can take a little poetic uh, liberty there. In other words, you're not going to be able to count the number of folks that come from you and begin to spread out and inhabit the land. This is a promise, it's a covenant with Abraham. There's only one problem. Year after year, decade after decade passes, and what? There's no baby, there's no baby. So how in the world, Lord, are you going to fulfill this promise without a child? Well, Sarah gets a little bit impatient, Sarah is his wife, and she starts to take things into her own hand. How many of you know when you're waiting on God, it's a good idea not to take things into your own hand? Waiting time in Christ is never wasted time in Christ. Amen? So let me pick up the story. This is Genesis 16. If you've got your scripture with you, or if you have it on your phone, I'd love for you to turn with me as I read. Okay, this is chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. What a terrible usury of another human being. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering, kind of odd since it was Sarah's idea. <laughs> I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. And here we'll pick up with the scripture. I really want you to see. It says, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And the word that is rendered harshly there means to oppress and depress and browbeat. It doesn't mean necessarily physical, but it's, it's an emotional um, mistreatment. That's what the word means there. So Sarah dealt harshly with her and she, Hagar, fled from her. 
The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. I just want to make a little bit of an interjection here. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord in, old, in the Old Testament, most scholars will tell you that that is something, it's kind of a fancy word that we call a theophany. It's a physical appearance of God himself in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's a Christophany. It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. But right here, y'all, when it says the angel of the Lord found Hagar, this is actually who finding Hagar? God himself. God himself is beginning to speak with the outsider. Let's go on. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness or the desert. You in a desert place? The Lord sees you. The Lord is finding you. The spring on the way to Shur, scholars will tell us that that means she's running back home to Egypt. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Ishmael actually means God hears. God hears your cry because the Lord has listened to your affliction. <clears throat> so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahi Roi or Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Ishmael. I want to talk about a few things that happens in this dialogue with God. Between a broken-hearted woman, maybe you're there today, in a desert season, or a broken-hearted man in a desert season. I want to look at a few things that the Lord does as he speaks to Hagar. What is the very first word that he says to her? Did you, did you notice it? Hagar. It's her name. It's her name. You know, when you call somebody by name... You're saying what? I, I know you. I recognize you. I see you. And one of the things that I've discovered in the body of Christ as I've had the, the honor and the joy of teaching a bit here and there is that many of us sit in the room and we think thoughts like this, though we would never say them. We think things like this. If God ever said my name, he would say it with a whole lot of disappointment. He might say it with a little bit of disgust. He might say it with a little bit of disdain. He might say it like he's taken in a bad sip of bitter coffee. Ugh, Rachel. <sighs> Allison. Brian. You see, we often project onto God the things we feel about ourselves. 
not understanding that if we are in Christ, he sees us through the blood of Christ and he says our names with love. He says our names with care. He says our names with tenderness. Our names will never be more beautiful than when spoken in the mouth of God. Maybe somebody in your life never said your name that way, a parent or a teacher. And I just want you to hear God saying, I think Pastor Chris even said it this morning, God is saying your name. He is calling your name, just like he called Hagar's in the desert. The next thing that God says in this dialogue that I find extremely interesting, and I admit that I'm a word nerd, but the next thing that he does is he asks Hagar two questions. Did you see them? He says, where are you coming from and what? Where are you going? Where are you coming from and where are you going? Now, if you have looked at the Bible for any length of time, you might kind of recognize this propensity of our great God to do what? To ask questions. Scholars will tell you that Jesus asked as little as 100 and some will say as many as 300 questions. Who do you say that I am? Woman, may I have a drink of water? Do you want to leave me too? On and on and on it goes. Go all the way back to Genesis. After the fall, what does God say to Adam? Adam what? Where are you? Now, does anybody in the room think that Almighty God did not know where Adam was? Right? Who didn't know where Adam was? Adam. Adam. And when he answered that question of God, all of a sudden he saw the pain and the shame and the blame. So a lot of times the Lord will ask us questions as an invitation to reason around a thing. And so I see so much care here toward Hagar, don't you? Hagar, <clears throat> Hagar, friend, where are you coming from? Where are you coming from today? Connection point. What's your story? Where have you been? Where have you been hurt? Where have you had a misunderstanding of me? Where are you in your story? Where have you been? And I love that he doesn't leave us there, but he asks another question. It's what? Where are you going? Isn't that the gospel, y'all? Where you been? Lord, I've been kind of jacked up, honestly. <clears throat> if you only knew, but you do. <laughs> but where am I going? Lord, with you, I'm going wherever you say go. I'm walking wherever you say walk. I'm following wherever you say come on, come and follow me. Let's go into all the earth and make disciples. I'm going where you go, Lord. Hagar, where you been? Hagar, where you going? And then there's something else, and we'll kind of finish here for today, that just absolutely slays my heart. After this intimate conversation with God, Hagar, an outcast, 
oppressed woman looks at God and says, you are the God who sees me. In other words, I have seen the living one who sees me. Y'all, this is kind of astonishing. An outcast woman names God. This is the only time God is called Elroi in all of the scripture. And it's a woman on the run, a woman in desperate circumstances who says, I've seen the living one who in turn sees me. It's astonishing, y'all, what happens when we enter into a conversation with God. Several years ago, uh, might even be as many as uh, 10 years ago, a decade ago, I was teaching uh, on, a, on a phrase in a different context, and that phrase is the apple of the eye. The apple of the eye. You know, for a long time, I just thought it was a term of endearment. You know, you're as sweet as an apple pie. I'm going to take a bite out of your shoulder or something, okay? I had just a totally wrong understanding of what the idiom meant. It was so fascinating to me because, again, I'm a little bit of a, a word nerd. It was very fascinating to me that the idiom entered into the English language through the King James Version of the Bible, where you'll hear scriptures like this. God is speaking and he says, he who touches you, Israel, touches me in the apple of the eye. Huh, that's something a little deeper than just a term of endearment. Or David who cries out, keep me, keep me, oh Lord, as the apple of your eye. David saying, I need to stay as the apple of your eye. There's something going on a little bit more deep than just a term of endearment. Well, imagine my surprise when I went into the original language and I found out that the Hebrew word that we render apple means the dead-up center point of the pupil, the pupil. So what God is saying when he says, if you are in Christ, of you and me, that we are the apple of his eye, that y'all, we are the dead up center point of his view. What it means, again, is that there is no periphery in the kingdom. You're not invisible to God. Just like Hagar was not invisible to God, you're not lost to God. He says, you're the apple of my eye. You're the apple of my eye. Do me a favor. Come here for a second. Come here. No, well, no. Yes, ma'am. You'll see why. It's got to be a girl. Okay. So, if I position myself in, hey, lovely. If I position myself in just the, the right way and the lights were to hit in just the perfect ratio, I could sort of finagle and sort of kind of see myself where in the apple of her eye the apple of the eye actually acts like a mirror but to know that I am the apple of her eye forgive my coffee breath it's teacher breath okay I've got to do what there you go can you say it get close I gotta get close I gotta come in close 
So the Lord says of you and me, if you're in Christ, you are the apple of my eye. Come in close. See how much I love you. See how much I see you. See how much I have for you. See how much I want to heal you. See how much I want to use you and walk with you, encourage you, teach you, change you, restore you, transform you, appoint you, anoint you. Come in close. Because your beauty really is in the eye of the beholder. It's just that your beholder is God and not the world. All that is contained in the apple of the eye. Thank you. My husband, my tall man, knew I was teaching on the apple of the eye. And uh, I was upstairs and he called out to me. He said, Allie, come down. You're not going to believe what I found. He was going through some digital pictures. And um, they're just the little tiny thumbnails. To this day, I still don't really understand how he saw it except that I believe it was a gift from the Holy Spirit. I'd like to show you what he found. That's my Luke. He's shaking his head, no, mama. I won't embarrass you too much. I'll stay looking this way. I don't actually know if you can see it, so let's, let's go in a little bit closer if we can. That's actually my older son, Levi, in the technical scriptural understanding of the apple of the eye that's absolutely unretouched all we did was what we came in close we did a close-up in Christ y'all that's where you and I are located here's the thing I've been able to share this now I don't know how many times with women which is the audience to whom I usually address. I'm super thankful to be here today. But what I know as I get to travel around the country is how many um, male band members and folks that are helping out say, you know, that's not just for women. Understanding our belovedness because of the blood of Jesus Christ is not just for women. I've always felt on the periphery. I've always felt like I was just lucky to slide into home base. That God took me up as his because he had to, not because he wanted to. God loves you. God sees you. God wants intimacy with you. 